We talked at Clyde Frazier's Wine and Dine. That's his restaurant on Manhattan's west side. Life has been good to Clyde, thanks in part to some intense adversity early in his life, which he says made him stronger. He still looks and sounds like he could step onto the court today and give the young guys a run for their money. I got to tell you, you're in phenomenal shape. I mean, look at you. Yeah, yeah, I do. I work out every day. Every day. What do you do? I have freeways. I have a universal machine. I have freeways. I have a bike, stationary bike in my apartment. And I do yoga. I do yoga every day. I've done that this morning before I do at least 45 minutes to an hour stretching. I feel, I feel lazy. I feel slow. <laughs> I got to catch up to you. Your day's already underway like that. Yeah, yeah. I just, so I, well, I have it in my house because I, whenever, sometimes I have energy at 8 p.m. You know, I never know when I want to work out, so I can just walk right over there and, and hit it. You keep the commute short. Right, because I knew I wouldn't be going to a gym. <laughs> I already knew that, so I was like, I got to have it in-house. But I look forward to it. I like, you know, getting into yourself for one hour, hour and a half. You know, Come not thinking about good. anything right, just, yeah. just focus on your body. Yeah. It's, like, it's like building wealth. Right knowing, how to, surely. right, knowing how to build your body is the same way. This is your temple. Your body is your temple. What you put in it, you reap what you sow. You pay now or you pay later. Was the restaurant. Thanks for having us here. What, what should we have off the menu? My favorite is grilled salmon, uh, chicken. You know, because my diet is very strict. I, I eat the same thing over and over. What, what? Fruits and vegetables, protein shakes. How's the business? Business is good. Seven years, maybe in April 1st, it'll be seven years. Well, you see this area is booming now. It's I know, you got Hudson now. Yards next door. So that's all the foot track. Two, when we came here, there was nothing here but Dwayne Reed across the street. <laughs> I remember. Yeah, so yeah. my partner took a lot of flack because they're like, what the hell are you doing, man? You're too far over. And it was. But he had faith in the restaurant, and now, you know, he's being rewarded. So. Wow. Now, what's your role in the restaurant? I'm the meter and the greeter. Are you part owner? I'm part owner. You just celebrated a birthday. March 29th is your birthday. By the way, my mom's birthday, so happy birthday. Oh, yeah? You're, a great, you're oh. a great company. Thank you, right. Aries. Absolutely. How'd you celebrate your birthday? You well, do? I was in St. Croix. I was just working with the guys. I really never do anything. I pay homage to God for, for the blessing, you know, almost three quarters of a century. That I've been around doing what I'm doing, and uh, that's about it. I never party. I never have big parties or anything. Never did. But you feel truly blessed. Oh, yeah. 74 years old, St. Croix. Now, that's where you, that's your main residence, right? Yeah. You found this island in <clears throat> 1980, if I have it right, right, at the end of your playing career. What, what is it about St. Croix that, that's the attraction? What's the pull? I took my son. He was 10 years old. I took him there on a vacation. It was around April, and I was there 10 days, and I decided this is the place I've been looking for. And I'd never been there before or anything. I was sleeping like a baby. The fresh air, the breeze, the way the wind blows. You get up in the morning, the way the sky looks, and at night, you know, the sunshine. So everything was so invigorating for me. And uh, I was like, man, this might be the place. And then I found the exact house that I wanted to live there, and, and that was it. 
and you've been developing the land, you've got homes on the land, you're a farmer, if I could use the right <laughs> term. Was that the right term? Or uh, uh, a gentleman farmer. <laughs> you but you love the land and planting and, and all that. What right. I've created that? this whole five-acre environment over the years. So maybe I have 12 rental properties. Some of them are one-bedroom, some are two-bedroom, some have a pool, some have an ocean view, some have a garden view. What happened when I retired in 1980, I thought basketball would fold because of the negative connotation that they had, black guys who were making all this money. You thought the league would fold? The yeah. NBA would go away? Yeah, nobody was making money. <laughs> nobody was making money. They were stigmatized as too black. Yeah. Yeah. So we had no major sponsors, anything. So Bird and Magic changed that. You know, then Dr. J carried them, then Jordan and those guys came, so where we are, where we are now. Mm -hmm. But we struggled for, we, we were struggling before Magic and Bird came out of college and turned the perception. So you were trying to preserve your wealth and, and your future right. by slipping out of the country? I mean, well, I saw my, my future there. I said, this is what I'll do. I'll rent my properties to tourists, and then I told you I got my captain's license. So I'll buy me a boat, I'll cruise people around on the island, I'll rent my house, and this is how I'm going to support myself. That was your plan? Yeah. How wrong was that, huh? <laughs> <laughs> so in 1987, I'm inducted to the Basketball Hall of Fame. So I come back to New York, I'm doing a series of interviews, and the people from the Garden approached me about maybe doing some radio or TV work. So that's how I ended up in, in the broadcasting aspect. It so worked out. That's, that's incredible. It's all serendipitous. <laughs> right, to use one of your favorite words. <laughs> so it has been a long Knicks season. You don't need me to tell you that. I'm a lifetime fan, all right? It is painful to watch these games. It's, it's just, okay, we're trying to trust the process. I mean, look, they've been rebuilding for 20 years. And right. no one knows that better than you, right? <laughs> the only two championships, you were the point guard. This was going on 50 years. It's hard to believe next year. 50, since the first one. Since this is like 73, since 73 one. Right. I mean, I, I just, <clears throat> it's mind-blowing. So, but every single night, you know, this is not going to turn out well. I mean, they've only won, what, dozen, 15 games? I, I, yeah, 14, I 14 think. games at this, at this interview. So how do you get your head, how do you get mentally prepared when you know it's going to be tough? It's going to be rough tonight. I try to do the perfect game. Which means? <clears throat> which is impossible to do. But, and I try to keep the fans interested in a game that might be a blowout yeah. that has no interest. You do, do a perfect game from what? From a, an announcing standpoint? Yeah, yeah. Well, that everything I study, I get in. I get all of my jokes in, I get all of my words in, I'm doing all of this stuff like, wow, and I'll say to myself, man, you had the perfect game, Clyde. Preparation is everything. Right. What's your preparation like? I mean, you've got all the stats and all the background you can possibly get. What does that entail? Remembering it at the key times, key moments in the game. Well, I was groomed for it because, <clears throat> excuse me, starting in radio, it's the most difficult part of doing broadcasting. Because there are nuances. The play-by-play yeah. -play guy talks all the time, and the color guy rarely says anything. So that's how I got into rhyming. The guy I used to work with, I, if I start talking, he goes, excuse me, Walt. He just run right over me. Who was that? 
<clears throat> a guy named Jim Corvallis. I remember him. Yeah, yeah, he was great, man. I used to idolize his voice, how he could talk over the crowd. But, you know, he used to work by himself. That was his forte when he, he used to do the bullet games with Earl Pearl. So now when he had a partner, it's difficult <clears throat> for you to get in and out. So when he had to catch his breath and the team was doing something, I go, they were dishing and swishing. <laughs> you know, he's ubiquitous. <laughs> So that's how I was like, man, I got to improve my vocabulary so I can get in a word without this guy coming over me. So that's you had like three started. seconds to speak, right? Right. Wow. And the other thing was when, I, when the Knicks hired me, I was doing pregame, halftime, postgame. At that time, Greg Gumbel was working with the Knicks. So we'd have maybe three minutes to articulate something, but I don't know what Greg is going to ask me. So usually I am like I am now, man. I'm very jovial and fun-loving, but I was like this because I, I was so involved. Like, what is this guy going to ask me? And how am I going to get it out, you know, in time? You were scared. Scared. Yeah. That I didn't want to be like, you know, you, you know, like you see guys doing that, embarrassing myself, my uh. family, my friends. So <laughs> I was like, yeah, man, I, I have to work on my vocabulary so, so I can realize be myself. So I used to get the Sunday Times, the Arts and Leisure section when they critiqued the plays, riveting, mesmerizing, provocative, profound. I never read the sports section. So all of these different words and then, so I have books and books of words and phrases that I study. People think I'm a voracious reader. I never read anything. <laughs> I just study my, when we go on the road, I just grab a couple of my books and I study, study my words. But when I was on radio, when we were on the road, I had my girlfriend record them. So say we're on the West Coast, she send the tapes to me. So on the way back to New York, I'm listening on the plane for to that your, five hours. To your words. So that I'm not redundant, yeah, that I'm not saying the same thing. How am I articulating a game? How am I doing it? So, so you really worked at the craft to get to this point. But you said something before. You're looking at words in books, just pulling words out that you're not familiar with? or Yeah, and I hated myself because I had to get the dictionary. Every time I start a sentence, I'm going to the dictionary, right? I'm like, man, why did you start this? But words are like people. The more you see them, the more you relate. Sure. So there's a, sport, a sports vernacular. There's an arts and leisure vernacular. Everyone has their different words in real estate, whatever you're doing. There's certain words that are staples of what you're talking about. So then you start to become familiar with those words like faces. Does it make you wish you'd been a better student? That you had yeah, yeah. read more? Do you think about that? Yeah, because now uh, that's one of my hobbies is studying words. And, and like fashion, I'm always listening for new words. Like I'm always looking for new fashion. So I'm always, when I hear a new word, I'm always cognizant of it and try to write it down. Because you have to read, old, like when I talk to my friends on the, on the phone, they go, hey, Clyde, save me for the radio. <laughs> I go, hey, man, I got to practice with somebody, you know? So I be throwing the words out at them. And, and people are always asking my girlfriend, does he really talk like that at home? <laughs> yes, is the answer. <laughs> right, right. Wow, but it's a love of words. But, but coming back to the next season, so you're trying to do the perfect game, but you know this is just going to be another brutal night. They're going to be hold it. They're going to make it to the third quarter. It might be in the game by the fourth. It's pretty much over. Right? Well, what do you think of this whole trust the process concept? Tanking, hoping for a, you know, to get Zion Williamson this year, really. That's what it is, to try to well, get the see, number the, one pick. What do you think of that the whole The players are not behind that. When you go on that court, it's about pride. 
It's not even about money. It's about pride, how you play the game, your love of the game. Because if you did it for money, you wouldn't be at this level. You know, when you started playing as a little kid, it was because you loved the game. So that's what it's like for the players. But management may be there trying to do something to, to get the process. We know Philadelphia did that very blatantly. And successfully, by the way. Right, right. So that's why they are being copied now. So teams are saying, why should we be mediocre and winning half our games when we can lose them and try to get better? What do you think of that whole thing? I'm not a, uh, an advocate of that. Not a fan? No. Just like I'm not an advocate of one and done. Our guys making the quantum leap from high school to the pros. Because for every Kobe Bryant, there were 12, 20 guys you never heard of. Their lives are devastated. No education. No education. No pro career. Right. It's a difficult thing. Yeah. What about the idea that the Knicks are going to get Kyrie and KD next year? Kyrie Irving and Kevin Durant. That's what fans want to believe, and that's what the media talk about. What, what are your thoughts on that? Is that realistic? It's realistic now after we traded KP. So we're in a position, we have the money to acquire two super max contracts. And we're bad enough that we're going to be in the running to try to get Williamson. So uh, I think that's why the guys did it. I mean, they put us in this position. KP is a, a, a unique talent. He's a unicorn. But will he get back to his former grandeur? Will he return to that from a knee injury? At 7'3", he's very receptible to injuries. So do we take that chance and give him a max contract or we unload him and do what they did? So right. I'm happy I don't have to make those decisions. <laughs> so it's fingers crossed. Fingers I mean, crossed. What, what I'm looking for as a Knicks fan is hope. Okay, give me some hope. The Knicks <laughs> fans always have hope. We've been hoping All for years. All they need is one little intermediate of hope. <laughs> Of hope, and they're there, man. They're, they're the best. The fans, that's why New York is the mecca for, for anything. But, but hear me out. My, my fandom started about the time that you were leaving the team, okay? So Jim Clemens was traded for you. I got that right? So I went through Michael Ray Richardson, um, Ray Williams, Sly Williams. Who else? Who, who, Bill Cartwright, Marvin Webster, and it just goes on. on. Toby Knight. Toby Knight went to my high school. Yeah. Big fans. Poor Jeff High School on Long Island. Willis Street was your coach. There you go. We had all these guys, right? And then the Ewing era. And then, you know, 1994 and John Starks missing the shot. You know, I, I kid that John. That was our year. It was 94. I know. I kid John today about it. But, you know, it, there's not much you could do about that one. It was, it was right there. It had every opportunity. Well, 99. to win one of these is symbolic of a perfect season. It Everything is. has to go right. As you hold up that ring. Do you wear that ring all the time? Every day. That's 73 or, 60, or 70? 73. Yeah. I, I screwed my finger up. I usually wear the other one on this one, so I can't get it on there right now. But a lot of guys put them in a trophy case, but I, I wear mine with pride. Every They inspire me. This is, it inspires me. What about the players today? Do they, do they see that? I'm sure they do. Yeah, on the yeah. Plane the coaches the see it. They go, oh, you wear that with pride. Huh? I go, yeah, man. This is why they play the game. This is what they're striving for. But, I mean, in terms of hope, <laughs> to get back to that, do you feel it? Is it in the air? Is it around the corner? Is it just a pipe dream? What, what's, what's it has your... to happen in the next three or four years. What's your gut tell you? Does it feel like it might happen? Well, we, we, need, we need KD. You know, I think anything other than him will, will be looked, viewed as a disappointment. 
you know, even if we got Kyrie without KD, it might, but he's the, he's the guy, he's the focal point right now that will bring all the hoopla and pageantry back. Now, it's true that he said last year that he would never play for James Dolan. Yeah, but, you know, guys say stuff. But when, if he looks at it like a businessman, how could he turn it down? I don't know how LeBron turned down New York. They were giving him everything. All he had to do was win one title here. Right? He would have truly been the king. Right. Yeah. It just didn't work that way. He didn't, a lot of guys don't want the pressure. They don't want the New York pressure. Because now you can get the money anywhere. The money is all over. When I came in the league, you want to be New York, L.A., Chicago. Because of the, the money and the outside opportunities once you leave the game. But these players don't have to do anything once they leave the game. They don't want to. They're financially any, set. You could be in any city and do just fine. Do really right. well. And you could be in some cities and not pay taxes. <laughs> that too. <laughs> right. So they have many options, and, uh, and that's why New York is not the focal point it used to be. Right. But now the hope is Kevin Durant. It's, it's almost Kevin Durant or bust is what I hear you saying. Well, it was Kevin for this year, but you see, they'll still have more cap money, and then hopefully we still have that draft choice. So it's not totally devastating. It won't be totally devastating for the Knicks. Now, you brought up LeBron. The other day, a lot was made of what you said when you saw him in the game, not in the huddle. You said it looks like he doesn't really care. Right. Is that what you meant to say? Is that how you meant to say it? I'm going to tell you why I said that. Mm -hmm. Because LeBron signed up for it. He, 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 he's the face of the NBA. He has a school where he's teaching kids the right thing to do. Right? He has a son that's just about as good as he is. So is this what you're going to tell those students at that school to do? If you don't get your way, you sit on the end of the bench like that? And there were millions of people watching that. And kids that are going to emulate LeBron. They're going to say, hey, LeBron did it, then, hey, I could do it. So that's where, that was my focus. That's where I was coming from as a role model, being a positive role model, which he is. So, but you can't have it both ways. You can't say to the kids at the school, get an education, do the right thing, and then when you don't have your way, you're going to sit there in front of millions of people in the world's most famous arena and not be a part of the team. So... I never thought that would be controversial. Yeah, what did you think of the reaction to that? <laughs> I was flabbergasted. I, I thought that would be, hey, that's what people would say. A no-brainer. Exactly. I, when, I, when I heard all the negative connotations again, I was like, man, because I, I just had one with Durant. <laughs> you know what I mean? I said Durant would join a team that didn't really need him his first year. Golden State. Right, right. right. So people were all over me for that. So, you know, the Knicks never tell me what to say, but obviously they call me and say, hey, Clyde, you know, we're trying to recruit some of these guys, so, you know, choose your words the way. So then now here I am with LeBron, and I'm like, man, I'm right back in trouble again. So that, so that was so funny. Then after that, the guy called me, he, he goes, hey, Clyde, uh, let's look at the schedule, see what other guy teams we're playing <laughs> He goes, you know, just, just keep it cool, man. So I said, hey, man, I, I never thought it would be controversial, so I'm, I'm, I'm cool with it. Could you imagine for a second Red Holtzman's got a huddle, your coach in the 70s, 60s and 70s. He's having a huddle. He's holding a huddle designing a play, 
and you or somebody else decides, I'm going to sit this one out. I'm going to sit at the end of the bench. What do you think Red Holtzman would have said? Or Willis Reed. Right. Yeah. How would that go down? It wouldn't have gone down. What would Red Holtzman have said? Right. He wouldn't be irate. But see, like I said, in public, right. Red wouldn't have said anything. He would have probably just looked at you. But in the locker room, he would have berated you, castigated you. And that's what I'm saying with LeBron. You have your problems in the public, man. Just go stand in the huddle. You know, but when you get in the locker room, you can tell them whatever you want. Nobody knows but you and the team. But you can't project that image to the – and another thing, or it's why I say that, man, I've been a role model since I was 10 years old. I'm the oldest of nine kids. So from – my mother always telling me, Walt, the family name, Walt, you got to take care of your sisters, Walt, you have to do this. So I'm always cognizant of, of – Projecting that image, man. <clears throat> That's who I am. I'm always the Knicks. I've never embarrassed the Knicks in 50 years. They can never say Clyde did something to embarrass the organization, right. or my fans can never say Clyde embarrassed us. Right. Yeah, because I'm always thinking. Like when I was growing up, when I had a situation with drugs or alcohol, I always thought, what would my mother think? You always thought that. Yeah, what would my mother think if I did this? Yeah. When I was younger, I would say, what would my mother do? <laughs> <laughs> Pull out the strap. Right, right. So I never smoked or drank in high school. I never, you know, I came to New York. I never smoked or drank or did drugs. I never did anything because of that. Because people are watching you. You're cognizant of that. The family. I was the first to go to college. I was the first to do everything. I'm, I'm like a surrogate surrogate parent when my even now when my sisters are doing something they always say don't tell Walt <laughs> right I'm the last to know anything that happens in the family because they view me as a parent because when my parents weren't around I was in charge I'm the guy who's dictating what goes on right. you've always felt that responsibility for those who may not know your stats or some of the, some of the, the fast facts about you Hall of Fame as we, we talked about 1987 Two-time NBA champion, seven-time All-Star, 75, the All-Star MVP, seven-time All-Defensive Team, 68 All-Rookie Team. What am I leaving off that list? You averaged almost 20 for the Knicks, 20 points a night, right? Yeah. Um, and assist was like... I'm eight. still the assist leader. Patrick, you and obliterated me from the other records. Points. But I still have the uh, all-time assist. Right. For those who may not know, I mean, you actually know a little bit about what you're talking about, right? It's not like just some guy observing basketball. You're not someone to be dismissed. I mean, the stats are real, right? And well, that's what I facts. say. People go, do these guys respect you? I go, if they can read. <laughs> <laughs> do you feel like they do? Do you feel like they give you respect to this day? Well, I, I don't know. I think they're amused by me, the way I dress and everything. You know what I mean? So they... I guess there's some respect there. Because when they look around and see different guys, and they go, man, Clyde, man, this guy, hey, how many of these guys would be doing what I'm doing at 74? One percent? <laughs> Maybe. Right. You know what I mean? Like, I played, when I played in 1967, I weighed 205. I weigh 205 now. No kidding. Yeah. Is it redistributed? or is it's it? It's probably a little different, but, you know, it's... <laughs> It's, it's according to the scale. So 
like like I tell my girlfriend, hey man, you're lucky if you just gain one pound a year. If you do that in 10 years, you're 10 pounds, 20 years, 30, I've been out of the game 40 something years. Same weight. Same weight. Wow. Who is on your list of top 10 all-time players? Who's number one? Best player of all time. I always say Will Chamberlain. He's the only Superman to ever play the game. You know, LeBron thought he was, but he see this year he's, he's not a Superman. He's been injured and things are coming apart. Will Chamberlain, they say he couldn't score, he'd go out and get 100. They say he couldn't rebound, he'd go out and get 55 rebounds. They say he couldn't assist, he leads the league in assists. So he, he's the only Superman to ever play the game. Who's, ever. Not, who's number two? I would go with Bill Russell because of the titles that he has, 13 titles or something. Wow. Yeah. Number three? Uh, maybe Jordan might sneak in there. You know, then I'm with West and Robertson. Elgin Baylor is one of the guys who's, who's left out. I might put Kareem in there, too, man. Kareem is very underrated for what he did for the game. And Unstoppable hook shot. Yeah. Leader. The most lethal weapon the game has ever known. All-time points leader, too, right? All-time points leader. Not even close. Right. Um, so we're at about six or seven. Who else? Magic, Bird. Those guys would come in there, some of the guys from that era. See, because you ask kids today, they start with Jordan, and then they go to LeBron. They don't even think of Kobe. You haven't mentioned Kobe. Right. Um, and those are the names that you'll hear today. But they change it daily, these guys. They're like sneakers. They, <laughs> you, you know what I mean? Soon they won't even be saying LeBron. They'll be on KD. And the problem today is who's ever playing today is the greatest. This is what they go on. But so, you've seen yesterday and today. Right, but, but when they start judging guys, like Stephen A, a lot of guys they've never seen, man. Like Elgin Baylor was a guy they've never seen, man. This guy was magnificent. But to people today who watch the video, they'll see a slower looking, less elevated, like, guys aren't jumping as high, and they're not dunking as fancy. Not Even Robinson, you watch Oscar Robinson on tape, you're not impressed. Right. Right. But that's, it's all in proportion to the times, right? Exactly. And what they were doing. And, and what, you see, we could hand check. This, when you can hand check people like, if you could do this to these guys, they might not even score. On defense. On defense. That's like carrying an extra weight around. Right. Where when, when Barnett came in in 1950, he said they could use two hands. And when I came in, it was one hand. Now you, you can't put a hand on them. So even Michael Jordan would have had a more difficult time. Magic, because Magic is not a jump shooter. So if I could ride him and keep him out of the paint, then he's less effective. You see, so, but now you can't put your hand on guys. That's why Harden is running amok. Anybody that can shoot the ball now is going to be a prolific scorer in this league. Plus, you can't intimidate anymore. When you come into the paint, I can't knock you on your butt anymore. Uh, can't hit you upside the head anymore. Like the bad boys of Detroit. Like the bad boys of Detroit. Or Anthony Mason. On the Test your heart. Right. right. And in the playoff, it was worse. Right. Right. There was no blood, no foul. Right. <laughs> now it's no contact. Right. You can't Almost. touch him, man. You touch somebody, it's, it's a... When we played, there was no flagrant foul. Right. Right. Like, I used to tell my friends in the playoff, man, they open the door, I'd be waiting in the hallway. 
on defense. All right. 48 minutes, man. Right. This is where it's going to be like. Right. You know, I, I love the intensity of the playoffs, man. I get chill bumps just thinking of it. Right. Yeah. Because I always say in the regular season, you make your name. Playoffs, you gain your fame. That's what people remember you for. And you make some money, too. Make some money there. In the playoffs. All right. No question. Speaking of money, um, you put your name on sneakers. First guy to do that. Among the first, if not the first, right? Puma. Yeah, Puma. Puma Clyde's. Did you even know what was happening at that point? Did you even grasp how that could grow and what that could become? It's just like winning these titles. I never knew we were creating history. So when they came to me, it was just another deal. You know, I was flabbergasted that, hey, man, I've I'm, I'm, I got my name on a shoe. <clears throat> my first contract was five grand and all the shoes I wanted. <laughs> but in those days, they would give you shoes, but nobody was getting paid. And obviously, my name is on the shoe. So my teammates used to tease me, man, Clyde got his own shoe. So they came out with the suede. Suede, one was blue with a white stripe and I red. Got, I just, that's the one I got. That was my right. first you know, real sneaker. Right, so when they approached me, they, they had the Puma basket, which was leather and heavy and clunky. And I go, man, even if you pay me, I couldn't wear this shoe. They go, no, we want you to help us design it. So that's what I did. I made it lighter, I made it more flexible. Obviously the shoe I had was better than what the public had, but it was a more lighter and flexible shoe. And Yours was better than mine? What do you a little mean? More, a little How more padding. How could that be? <laughs> A little more fatty because of my skills. <laughs> the level you were playing at. Right. So, but I never, I never knew that 40 years later we'd still be here with my name on Puma Clyde's and the shoe is thriving again. It's back. Yeah. Yeah. I guess Jay-Z is involved with it. Jay-Z brought DeMarcus. it back. He signed a lot of the number one players. The Knox wears it. DeMarcus Cousins? Cousins, yeah. Cousins got it. Uh, Aiton, Andre Aiton, he was the number one pick overall. And Bagley, number two pick overall, also wears the Puma Clyde. So I met those guys, you know, and they kind of look at me like, because their parents had told them, man, this was the guy, man, this was the guy who was the first guy with the shoes. That's got to be fun. Yeah. That's got to be really cool. So these guys, when they see me, they call me Legend. Hey, what's up, Legend? <laughs> yeah, that's what they do. That's pretty cool. The, um, the name Clyde, for those who don't know, that's an interesting story. I, I didn't even realize until I went and looked it up where, where the name came from. An equipment manager? A guy in the locker room? Well, there was a movie, the movie Bonnie and Clyde. Sure. Uh, the, the gangster. So I used to wear... The, it was played by Warren Beatty. Warren Beatty, Faye Dunaway. Right. Actually, in, it was the number one movie that year. So it was very popular. So when I was a rookie, I wasn't playing up to expectations. So. To pacify myself, I always went shopping. <laughs> I go out and buy me clothes, go back to my room and dress up and look in the mirror and say, I ain't playing good, but I still look good. <laughs> so one day we were in Baltimore and I'm looking in a hat store and I see this wide brim Bossalina, a brown velour hat. So I buy the hat. The first time I wore the hat, everybody laughed at me. My teammates, other guys on the team. And what are you thinking? Because in those days, it was the narrow brim, right? That was his style, like now. So I go, hey, man, I look good in this hat. I'm going to keep wearing it. So as fate would have it, two weeks later, the movie Bonnie and Clyde comes out. So I wore it in the locker room with the trainer. go, hey, look at Clyde, you know? So 
That's how the moniker started. So all of my endorsements, commercials were, were dealing with the name Clyde. The guy calls you Clyde? And what did you think? Well, I knew it was from the movie, you know, because with the hat. So everyone had a good laugh for this? Yeah, yeah, everybody was laughing and then it caught on. But how did it go from that to, to everything that we know now? I mean, who, who then took it from there? Well, I, I catapulted it because I, I was still in the ball on the court. You know, that was one of my fortes, was right. like the thief. Quick hands. And then I was dressing. You know, I got the Rolls Royce. So that's how the, the evolution of the cloud. I had a few Bonnies following me around. <laughs> <laughs> More than one. But did, you, did, did, did someone in the locker room say that to the, to the sports writers? I mean, how did they get to the Well, players? the sports writers started focusing on my dress. You know, once I started playing, they, this Clyde, man, this guy's always dressed. He's a snazzy dresser. And then the kids liked my demeanor on the court. I, I was always poker faced. I never showed emotion. So they viewed that as Clyde is cool, man. He, you know, right. He's a cool guy. And then, so that's how all of it kind of started coming together. So the original pair of shoes that you had and the original uniforms and jerseys, that ended up in Atlanta, right? Man, my nieces and nephews, I have nothing. What do you mean? What happened to this stuff? I had it at home in my basement, and, and these guys went through everything. The kids? Yeah, I have nothing. Destroyed the stuff? They were like, wearing it. And wearing not, unbeknown it. to me, yeah, they were the wearing the stuff. The ultimate memorabilia is gone? Gone. Millions wow. of dollars. What? Yeah. That should have been at the Hall of Fame. Well, you know, I kind of wanted my... my Parents and stuff to have it around, you know, they could show and be proud of it. And sure. Yeah, they just didn't take care of it. That's devastating. I know. Yeah. I mean, you know, it's just stuff in one sense, but it's still highly valuable. Yeah, because I, when I see Kareem and all these guys, well, they, they've saved all of their stuff. And, uh, Kareem just sold a bunch of rings, right? Yeah, a lot of his stuff for like six million. Dr. J did a similar scenario, six million they gave. But I have no trophies. I, have, I don't have just the memories, man. I have the rings, but the rest of the things. Ouch. Yeah. All right, let's, let's let that one go, I guess, right? Right, right. I don't even have any Puma, old Puma shoes, no anything. One. No. Wow. They would be valuable, too. Wow. Sorry I brought it up. <laughs> <laughs> so let's, let's go back to Atlanta. You call it humble beginnings. You had a mom, a dad, nine, oldest of nine siblings. Seven sisters and one brother. One brother in Atlanta. Segregated Atlanta. Segregated. How would you describe your childhood? Magnificent. Because? Fun-loving. Because? Rewarding. Because look at me. <laughs> you did okay. I did okay, man. I, I know what it's like to be hungry, but we weren't always hungry. I... I, uh... What did your dad do? Factory? Factory worker? Yeah, yeah. What, what kind of Atlanta paper company. What does that mean? What do they do? Assembly line? No, like uh, corrugated boxes and different things like that. My grandfather worked there too. You mentioned segregation. I grew up under the impression of segregation. So my father and my grandfather, but they always taught me never look down on a person unless you're helping them get up. Wow. So, like I tell, I have no malice against white people at all. I don't hate them. I never went to places they didn't want me. <laughs> you know what I mean? I knew my place when I went downtown. I went to the colored fountain. I went to the back of the bus. I, I did my thing, and I, I survived. Mm -hmm. But I think growing up under the impression of segregation has given me a fire that burns today, a fire you can't put out. Fire for what? for life, for whatever I want, my determination. Like my mother said, 
keep knocking on the door one day, they'd have to let you in. You know, you can be whatever you want to be, but you have to apply yourself. Then the, the way out was education. Whatever you get in your head, son, they can't take. Is your mom talking? My mom, my coaches, my grandfather, my peers, everybody's telling me the same thing, education. Then if you're good enough to play sports, that's fine too, but you can only play sports for so long, then what do you do? By the way, mom was a, what, what did she do? She stayed at home? Housewife. Ra raise the kids? Yeah. Homemaker. Homemaker. As they say. Um, so then you, where, where did you, how did you discover sports? Did it discover you? It was my whole life. I was always on the playground. Basketball, football, baseball. I used to pray to God every night to, to let me be an athlete so I could help my mother. When I was growing up, my mom was always wanting a house with a big kitchen because she loved to cook. <laughs> So I used to pray, man. I'm telling you, since I was 12 or 13, please let me be a ball player. Which sport? Football was your best sport, right? Well, in the South, football is king. So everybody follows football, but I also like basketball. I was a quarterback, so those days there were no black quarterbacks. And I didn't think I had the speed to be a wide receiver or a defensive back. So when I went to college, I stuck with basketball. You had more offers in football than basketball. In basketball, yeah. Now, where were these offers, like, for college? Well, all the black schools, Grambling, Florida A&M, Tennessee State. So I had all of those. In basketball, I had very few offers uh, because they didn't recruit basketball players from the South. So that's I an incredible. To to, that's an incredible statement. They yeah. recruit from the South. Right, like Today, South. that's not even... Right, they went to New York. The basketball players were in New York, New Jersey, Philadelphia. That's where they wanted to recruit basketball Cities. players. Right, so they didn't come to the South for that. So you pick Southern Illinois, they pick you? I was a walk-on, literally. There was a guy that befriended me in Atlanta. He tried to get me in Indiana, but my SATs weren't high enough. So he knew someone at Southern Illinois. I never knew them. Oh, they never knew me, so I went up to visit. I wanted to go to Tennessee State, where Dick Barnett went, and where they say they had a lot of pretty girls. <laughs> so but when I went to Southern Illinois, my mother said, son, education, you're going to get a better education there. So let me, let me see if I have it right. You pick a school without a basketball scholarship, a shot at basketball, other schools are asking you to come play football, and you choose this place to go play basketball with no guarantee. That's what you did. Right. Were you, were you thinking, I can do this? Were you hoping? What was your, what was your thought? I don't think I had a thought. I was kind of naive at that point. It was a long shot, on paper at least. <clears throat> yeah, and when I went there, the, the head coach wasn't there, so it was like the freshman coach, and he kind of gave me kind of a work out and they offered me a scholarship so when we started practice the coach called me in his office one day Southern Illinois used to give out like, like three full scholarships where you got a full ride otherwise you had to work they had like a work program mm -hmm. like say during football season you had to put up bleachers take down bleachers uh, one hour a day you had to pass out towels in the men's locker room so you had to do some kind of work program work. Not just play. Right. <clears throat> so the coach came in and told me he was giving me a full scholarship. 
because he knew my background with all of my kids, you know, and all of that. So your your siblings. Yeah. So I used to get fifteen dollars a month, which then no one said anything about colleges giving players money. So fifteen dollars a month for it, though, right? No, no. Now I wasn't on the work program. Oh, it was a stipend. Right. <clears throat> That's what you. Yeah, fifteen dollars a month. All, obviously, all the major colleges had that. And guys will get summer jobs and all this, so no one ever complained. Now you can't do any of that. Wow, so you, you had at least walking around money. <laughs> and I was rich every <laughs> month when I got my $15. Man, spare Converse were $6. Wow. Pizza was 25 cents. <laughs> you could go to the movie for, what, 10 cents? Wow. So that was that was a, a big deal, man. I used to splurge with my friends, you know, take them out, buy pizza, different things. So. But this wasn't the first time you had a little money in your pocket. There was a first job <clears> back <throat> in high school in Atlanta at a, as a curb service waiter. That was right. your first job, right? Right, called the Zesto. It was sort of like a Dairy Queen, you know, with the Maltese and all sure. of that. and Or the Varsity <clears throat> in Atlanta, that famous curb service restaurant. Right? right, right. So you're out there running burgers and shakes and fries out to people? Yeah, that was your first but job. one day I, I'm on the playground. <clears throat> Excuse me, so these guys said, hey man, anybody want a job? Go down to Zesto, I just quit. So me and my best friend, we looked at each other, so we went down there. So, so the guy goes, you know how to be a curb boy? We, we knew nothing about curb boy putting trays on the car. We almost got fired in the first hour because we didn't know how to hang the tray or anything. So then the guy stuck with us. And so my best friend ended up working there all the way through high school. He was best dressed in high school, my best friend, a guy named Marvin Cato. So, you know, I used to play in, in the eighth grade. Say like we were in, in the gym in the eighth grade. I'm passing left-handed, I'm passing right-handed playing football. So the coach is like, son, why don't you come out for football? I said, coach, I got to work. I didn't have to work, man. Those guys were breaking guys' legs and everything. I was like, man, I'm not going out there. Oh, on the football field. Yeah, you're on the yeah. football. Because, you know, the B team practices against the varsity. So I used to come up there and watch them practice, and the coach would be hounding me. Son, I thought you had to work. I said, I do, coach. I'm off today. So I couldn't even go up there and watch, man, because when he see me play, during school, man, he'd be telling me to come out. So, but I played eighth grade basketball. You know, I was the captain of the team and all of that. The ninth grade, I did nothing because that would have been the, the B team going against the varsity. I was like, I'm not doing that. You want none of that. So the 10th grade, 10th grade, I was 6'3", 185. Wow. So I was... I said, man, I'm ready to, to go out. That's when I, I went out for the team. Perfect body. So I started in basketball and football, baseball. I was playing all three sports. Was that a growth spurt that you had? What, yeah, short from being age? at the Zesto, I'm sure, eating all the hamburgers <laughs> and hot dogs. <laughs> right. And it worked out. And that place is still there to this day. It's still there. You've been back any time recently? No, I haven't been there. Usually I only go to Atlanta now when we play. Right. So sometimes we get in the night before the game, so I haven't been able to check it out. But they're still there, as it, as it turns mm -hmm. out. I read that you cried when you left high school. Yeah, I said, I'll never have this much fun again. You cried? I cried, yeah. You realize it? I used to cry during games, you know, when we really? lost in basketball. No. I was a big crybaby growing up. <laughs> 
See, because I, I don't understand that, crying during sports. And I see it all the time, like March Madness right now. They lose their crying. Yeah. I never understood that. What, what's that emotion like? Because, I mean, you lose. You it's lose. devastating, man, yeah. that you lose. You put so much effort into it and hope into it <clears throat> that I used to cry. I become reclusive. Even with the Knicks when I played, when I lost, you never saw me out. You would shed tears? Not then. I, I would just go into a shell. I don't talk to anybody on the phone. I don't do anything. It was that painful. Yeah. So luckily we were winning. That's how I became Clyde. Like when we're winning, I'm out. But when we're losing, the music doesn't sound as good. The food doesn't taste as good. There's no reason for me to be out. I focus on why I'm here. This is my profession. Yeah. So I have to be dedicated. What, what about now? Do, does this stuff bring you to tears now? I mean, it brings me to tears watching the Knicks play, but that's another, <laughs> that's another story. But what, what about now? Does stuff bring you to tears? Uh, young kids, when I see young kids, sometimes the things that they say, I, I get teary-eyed. Stuff sometimes say. I see coaches uh, accomplishing different goals and how they motivate their players. You know, it's very emotional, pundit feelings that I get. But not with the Knicks being, I don't really cry over the Knicks. I'm, I'm heartbroken. You know, I feel sorry for the fans because they're the most dedicated fans, but not to the point where I really cry tears. I had to get over that from high school. Because when you come into the pros, <clears throat> like even in college, I, if, if I don't win, man, I don't go out. So I come to the Knicks and we were losing when I first came. I go right to my room. Wow. And then I was rooming with Phil Jackson. So Phil Jackson goes out, he had beers, and then he come in, he goes right to sleep, and there I am still sitting up in the room. Thinking about it. Right. So I found out, man, for 82 games, you can't do this. <laughs> right. you got to have a release. Right. right. So if you lose, go out, have a few drinks, come back, and, and that's how you do it, man. you got to have that release. You just can't be that intense in the pros for 82 games. Right. Your college career. Um, you left after the third year, correct? After three, no, I played after, four. You played all four? No, no, I, I played three years. One year I was ineligible to play, oh, that's which right. counted as my fourth year. So my class was graduating, so I could, I could leave. Right. So you're the number five pick overall in 67, correct? Right. Number one, remind me here who it was, Jalen Rhodes, Rose's dad. Jimmy Walker. Jimmy Walker. Supposed to be the next Oscar Robertson. Right. Great player. From Providence. Who, yeah. who didn't, you know, rise to the same greatness that he was in college. Off-court antics. Right. Yeah. Right. And then Earl Monroe went fourth. Earl Your rival turned teammate. Right. He was fourth. You were the fifth overall pick. Right. Number seven was a guy named Pat Riley that year. Pat Riley, right? How about that? It's a uh, good class. Phil Jackson was a little later. I think like 18, something like that? Yeah. Um, that's pretty impressive for a guy who went to Southern Illinois. Not North Carolina, not, you know, <laughs> not the big schools, UCLA or somebody. I, I never expected it. Yeah, what was your <laughs> Because when I read a magazine, my name wasn't in the book. So only when I came to the NIT and we played against... Uh, St. Pete's, New York team, Rutgers, Duke, Marquette. So the guys I was reading about, I was out playing these guys. And then I'm the MVP of the uh, NIT. But even after that, I didn't think I was, the pros would draft me. 
I guess because I didn't want to be overconfident and get hurt. But like they were the pros were always asking me, would I come out? You know, I could have gone back to college another year. Right, you were short of graduation. Right, but I still had another year of eligibility. Right. So they were asking me, are you going to come out? And I couldn't believe these guys were asking me that. I'm like, you know, but I was married. I had a kid. But I loved college just like I loved high school. I loved my teammates. So that was a difficult decision for me to make to come out. Because if I stayed in, I would have been able for the Olympics the next year, 68. Would have been the Olympic team. And we would have had our, basically our same team back. So we would have been good. But, you know, the ramifications when I weighed everything. The Knicks never talked to me. And they still chose you. Right. How about that? Well, you won't believe this. I had a deal with Seattle. Seattle had the pick before the Knicks. The Sonics? The Sonics. So my agent is talking to them on the phone. I'm listening. So we, they said, we're going to draft you. We had worked out a three-year deal with Seattle. So I go to class. And I come back, and my agent has this dreadful look on his face. He goes, you've been drafted by the Knicks. Wow. I go, the Knicks? They never talked to me, man. They never called me uh, anything. Were you happy about it? No, because I thought they drafted me to trade me. Because they had Bill Bradley coming, they had Cassie Russell, they had Barnett, they had all these backcourt guys, and I was like disappointed. Disappointed. I was like, yeah, what are they going to do with me, you know? But now I think how different my life would be, right? If I would be uh, London Fog, <laughs> Timberline. <laughs> Dealing with Seattle rather than Clyde, the smooth guy in New York City. Patagonia so or somebody, right? People don't realize how, how the draft influences your life. Man. It just changed your trajectory. Right. The city that you're drafted by is, is very dictating what's going to happen for your career. Serendipitous. Serendipitous. To use one of your words. Your, your whole lifestyle became the focus of everybody's articles and and stories, right? I mean, in the book you wrote, Rock and Steady, you had the forward by Ira Burkow right. and Bill Russell. And the thing that jumped out of me from both of them was they, they talked about this guy who was his own man, who did his own thing. You weren't concerned about other people's perceptions necessarily. I mean, to a point, yes, but not, that right. wasn't your focus. Like the hat, the, the, hat. the Clyde hat, hey man. I, People yeah. laughed, but Right. And look what it turned into. How about that? What, what do you think the lesson of your life is? Because, you know, you went out, you partied, you had a good time, you know, but you also did it your way. My mother used to always tell me, son, you can't please everybody, just please yourself. And I remember when I signed a big contract, I, I hated everybody. My aunts, my uncles, everybody was coming up to me, want to borrow money, want to borrow money, man. Let me hold this, let me hold that. And, you know, people would tell me what kind of music I should be listening to now. You know, once I bought a Cadillac, man, you should be listening to this, you should be listening to that. And I went to my mom and she said, son, just be yourself. That's all you could be. You took it to heart. Right. So that's what I would tell anybody, just be yourself, man. Follow your instincts. Uh, your, your future has already been determined by the, your formative years determine what you're going to be and how you're going to be. Like I say, the village put that fire in me. 
That fire burns every day, man. When I have a problem, I think of what would my grandfather tell me? You know, what would my uncle say? What would my mother say? And I solved that problem. You made, you made choices, the lifestyle choices you had, all kind of clothes. I mean, more clothes than anybody could count, right? You, even, you forgot suits that you had in the closet. See, my dad was a clothes horse. Uh -huh. That's where I got the genetics from, my father. Okay. He was into clothes. And my, my brother, okay, I'm the oldest. There's seven girls. I have twin sisters in there. My brother's the youngest. He's also a sharp dresser, but he's not flamboyant. But he wears sharp clothes, but he's not flashy like me. <laughs> <laughs> but like dozens of pairs of shoes, hats. I mean, just, he had the rolls. What color was the rolls that you were driving in 73? Uh, what, what year antelope and burgundy. The top, the hood, the trunk was antelope. The sides were burgundy. And you had two parking <clears throat> spots in your apartment over there on the east side? Because it was cheaper than getting dents in my car. When people opened the doors, denting it. So I used to park diagonal, so I got no dents on it. A lot of my stuff was pragmatic. You know, I, okay, I, I, in New York I have a, a Cadillac, right? When I go out, how far do I go? Do I go 20 miles? No. Right, because everything is straight up, right. <laughs> so then I go to trade in the caddy and they start telling me it's lost value. And I'm going, man, I only have 10,000 miles on it. So one day I'm walking down 3rd Avenue, I'll never forget, it was a sunny day, that was a Rolls Royce park. <clears throat> and I'm admiring the lines of this car, man, and I'm going, but the color was still gray. You know, so I, I, my friend, I had a new uh, guy who was uh, at the Rolls Royce dealer. I told him, he goes, man, you can paint it any color you want. So that's how I ended up with the rose. Once I knew I could change the color, something still was missing on the rose. Once I put the, the, the antelope and the burgundy, <laughs> and I even put the Landau bars on the back, you know, so... <clears throat> I go, it's the tires, man. These tires are killing me. Black so, tires. Black tires. So I got the gangster white walls and put <laughs> on there. Then people were saying, man, on a Rolls Royce, you go, hey, man. So I go, now, this is the Clyde Mobile. This is it right here. <laughs> and I also remember when I was a kid, I'm reading this book about you. And there you are lying on your bed in your apartment on the east side of Manhattan. And on the ceiling, the, first of all, the bed is a, is a circle, is round. Round, right. <laughs> and on the ceiling is a, is a round <clears throat> mirror. This is, I saw this with my own eyes, right? I, I'm not making this up. Right, right. And, and you're lying on the bed looking at the mirror. And I'm a kid, I'm like, why is this guy looking at the mirror? What is that? How does that work? I didn't understand. It wasn't until years later, but I want to hear from you how, how did that, how did that occur to you? How did this, how did this come about? Well, a lot of that was, I copied some from Namath, Joe Namath. Joe Namath. Did he do that too? Yeah, he had, you know, the bachelor's pad. That was sort of the bachelor's pad, the round bed, the mirror ceiling. Man, every night I worry would the thing fall down on me. <laughs> I saw they glued it up there, yeah, but I'm like, what if know. it falls, you know? But that's kind of where that evolved from. And, and the fur coats. And there was a furrier called Ben Khan. So... One year he gave Willis and I a coat just for the promotion. So Willis, you know, he's, he took a shorter version, like a hunter, and I took a, a seal, long seal down to my ankles. 
So that's how I got into the fur coats. So once I got the seal, I, I used to go to him and get the minks. So the worst thing for me was when I'm dressing to get lint over my clothes. So I asked the guy, what doesn't shed? He goes, mink. So that's why I had a mink spread on that bed, because the mink doesn't shed. So that's how the evolution of the Clyde and the fur coats evolved as well. Fast forward to today. What, what's your bedroom like now? <laughs> it's more conservative, no, no mirrors on the ceiling, just a kind of generic bedroom. And what's, what's the home life like today? What's it like? I imagine it's a lot more chilled out. Yeah, yeah, I just do TVs. I got my workout room. I actually have terraces. I'm up in Harlem, so uh, my gardening, I, I want to do my terrace and have the plants and stuff out there. So. It would make me mitigate not being in St. Croix some of the time. Right. So from Harlem to St. Croix, you've got it all covered. But I, I have a knack for decorating like I do for clothes. Like I can see a space and go into a space and kind of design. So my whole place in St. Croix, I landscape, design it, decorated everything. Nobody, a lot of the women I've known get upset that I don't come to them for advice or anything. I just go, I don't get a decorator, I just, I, I read a lot of books. Right. I've gone through a lot of magazines and I'm always looking like I do for words of fashion. And then one day I'll see something and I go, that's, that's, that's what I want, that's how I want to do it. It's a passion. It's a passion. I, I love creating, I love putting together unusual colors and different things like that. You know, I love being in my garden, just watering my plants, watching them grow to different, how a color can make you smile. You can see a bougainvillea over there and just see that color, man. You know, hibiscus over there, you know, flamboyant trees. Or I just sit somewhere and I go, man, this is cool. So my whole yard, the evolution of my yard was one day I got caught in the rain out in my yard. And it rained for like 45 minutes. And I go, well, man, I need a gazebo here. <laughs> So that's how the gazebo ended up. So you up. built it. Right, right. So, or the steps. I'd be coming down somewhere, i go, man, you know, I need some steps here or something. So that's how the whole evolution of my yard happened. Yeah. That I just might be out there in the evening. I spent a lot of time just walking in my yard. So everything I've done, though, is like moving to St. Croix wasn't a spur of the moment. You know, this is something I've been thinking about for years, where I want to live, what kind of environment. And then, like I say, I see something in the book, I would think, I go, man, this might be the place. It's all an evolution. I like the way you put that. And as I'm sitting here, I'm thinking of your greatest game. It was the finals against the Lakers. 36 points, 19 rebounds. 19 assists? I'm sorry, assists. And then uh, uh, steals and rebounds were about the same number. Seven right? rebounds, four steals. Right. But who's counting? Who's counting? <laughs> and who remembers stuff like that? <laughs> what an evolution. That was against the Lakers. You won a championship. Was that the first, f that's one. The first, the first one? First one. 1970. When you, if I you was were, 25 years old. I owned the world. On top of the on world. On top of the world. My goodness. And, and to where you are now. Are you able to, to just sort of get your head around that and... and, and you know, if, when, when you say the name Walt Frazier, what, what is it that, that you hope that conjures up and what people think about? Well, what, what has happened today is respect. It's a name of respect. When people see me, they show me respect. Uptown, downtown, black or white, 
they smile. They see Clyde. Hey, Clyde. You know, they smile. Like when I played, I never feared being robbed. You know, I wore my four coats anywhere. My jewelry. Hey, man, I'm Clyde. No, I don't need a bodyguard. Nobody, everybody likes Clyde. I don't have to have a bodyguard, you know? So that's what uh, respect, because money can't buy respect. You can't buy respect. You got to earn it. So that's what I have. And I see it. Sometimes I'll hop in a cab and a guy won't charge me. He goes, hey, man. I'll go in a restaurant and they go, man, you can't spend any money here. To this day? Yeah. If the Knicks start winning again, I can't. I'm telling you, wherever I go, people will buy me drinks, still telling me, thanks for 1970, you know. I go to Miami, it's the same thing. L.A., anywhere, there are a lot of New Yorkers. Yeah, people show that respect, man. Come up, just want to shake my hand. And that's why I, I stay humble. And if you come to the garden, there's one autograph you'll always get is mine. And if you see me at the garden, I'm always smiling, man. I'm a blessed person. Like yesterday, I did an appearance at a store, and one of my biggest fears used to be, what if nobody comes? <laughs> right? I, hey, man, I haven't played in 40-something years. What if, what if nobody, you know, the big line of people out there? They were. None of them were born when I played. Wow. A whole generation, a lot of them don't even know me as the ball player. TV announcer. TV announcer. I hear the kids at the game, hey, Dad, there's the Nick announcer. <laughs> There's a guy with the fancy suits. Right. Yeah, so it's, it's something I can't take for granted because right. I know my teammates don't get it. Right. You know, a lot of players, former players, don't have it. <clears throat> that I'm making more money now than when I played. <laughs> think about that. Right, right. At, at, the, at the peak, you made, what, 400 grand a year? 300. 300. Which was, allowed me to buy almost any place in New York City, 300,000 back in those days. It was a lot of money. It was a lot of money, but the taxes and all that was different. But I couldn't retire like today's players, right. you know, with one uh, big contract. But I don't envy today's guys with what they make. I always realize everything's in the timing. It's relative. Everything is relative, man. But my thing, when I see a guy signs for all this money, I go, I hope he's happy. Because the bottom line is, are you happy? Right. You know, like, can you walk in peace? That's the main thing, man, right. is, is to be happy, you know? Right. That's a great place to stop. Thank you, man. No, thank thank you. you. Thank you so much. Fantastic. Right.